You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hello, everybody. I am Hi. Hi. Good to see you. I am going to start my topic uh, this week with one of my favorite stories. Ooh, exciting. Yeah. Um, probably you've heard some part of this, or maybe all of it before. Ernest Shackleton and his crew of 27 oh. men had already endured a lot. Uh, it sounds original... so familiar. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice pun, by the way. <laughs> yes. See what I did there? Uh, their aim had I been to make the first crossing of the Antarctic continent, but their ship, The uh-huh. Endurance... yes it had become unfortunately (gasps) caught in pack ice in the Weddell Sea yeah in December 2014 Uh, not 2014 1914 excuse me 1914 2014 no we are just getting to the who could forget when Ernest Shackleton was trapped at the South Pole in 2014 for the first time uh so the ship oh. drifted with the ice for months until it was finally crushed in October 1915, and they mm. abandoned ship. Uh, then they camped on the ice. And they were gradually shooting and eating their sled dogs until April uh, 1916. Yep. <sighs> Horrible. And uh, finally, the northward drift of the ice brought them to open water, which was near the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. Uh, Mm -hmm. They then took to the Endurance's three lifeboats and rowed and sailed the stormy waters to Elephant Island, which is a godforsaken bit of rock that's about 245 (laughs) kilometers north-northeast of the tip of the peninsula. It's Mm -hmm. not much better than being trapped in an ice floe. Not a lot. There were, however, (laughs) um, there was fresh water. There was uh, seals and penguins they could use for food and fuel. So there was that. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. And after resting and recuperating Maybe a little a bit, warmer. Yeah, a little bit. But the, the, the beach much. that they were on was <laughs> getting like raked by storms and it was it was pretty horrible. Oh. Um, so it was now May 1916. The Antarctic winter was coming on. Uh, as I mentioned, they had fresh water and some food as well as, you know, they had all these supplies that they had brought with them that were intended for crossing the continent. But you know, now they were using to survive. But at any rate, this was not a place where ships pretty much ever came. And so there was basically zero chance that they would be rescued if they stayed there. So Shackleton, Mm -hmm. as the leader of the expedition, decided that their best chance of surviving was to, he took five men with him in one of the lifeboats, which they kind of retrofitted to be a little sturdier. Mm -hmm. And the plan was to sail 1,300 kilometers. That's about 810 miles to South Georgia oh, Island, oh, oh, where there was a whaling station. Yeah. In essentially a, a lifeboat. In a lifeboat, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would happily talk more about this. I, you know, it's such an amazing survival story. But this 17-day mm-hmm. voyage 
which incredibly ended in success and the eventual rescue and survival of all of the 28 original crew of the Endurance. Amazing. Um, yeah. But actually, I told this story as an introduction to the body of water that the six men had to cross to reach South George Island, which is yeah. called the Drake Passage. Uh, so the Drake Ooh. Passage is the narrowest passage around Antarctica. So it's about 800 mm-hmm. kilometers from the southern tip of South America to the northern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. And it is notorious mm-hmm. for having probably, arguably, the roughest seas on the planet. <laughs> Not great. Uh, that makes sense. There's a reason why there's a Panama Canal now. Indeed. But anyway. <laughs> so there's a few reasons why it's so dangerous. It's where the Atlantic and Pacific and Southern oceans meet, uh, which means that there are different ocean currents, wave patterns, and winds that all converge there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And in addition, if you circle the globe at the latitude of the Drake Passage, which is about, it's between 55 and 75 degrees south, approximately, there is no Mm -hmm. large landmass there that interrupts the flow of water and wind. So (laughs) the, the wind is westerly, and it just keeps going and it builds up those waves and um there's nothing addition, to stop it there's nothing to stop sure it would be nice to have some storm oil huh <laughs> it, it would be i was thinking when you were doing this topic last week I was thinking, ah, if only i'd been doing this topic last so week. so close uh the passage is also very deep it has an average depth of uh 3400 meters which is about 11,000 feet, which is only a little less steep than the average depth of the Atlantic Ocean. So it's, you know, it's deep. Oof. Just um, All of this adds up to frequently stormy seas with huge waves of up to 12 meters or about 40 feet. Um, <laughs> no. Nope. 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 Nightmare conditions if you're trying to travel <laughs> in, a, in a converted lifeboat. Um. And it has also posed many problems for other ships as well, Uh, especially before the opening of the Panama Canal, as you mentioned, Rachel, in 1914. Mm -hmm. uh, There were a few choices for crossing between the Atlantic and Pacific. There's the Strait of Magellan and the Beagle Channel, uh, which, but those are inland Mm -hmm. waterways. um, The kind of thread between the tip of the mainland tip of South America and some islands of Tierra del Fuego. And, Mm -hmm. Because there are strong and unpredictable winds, uh, there's always the risk of being blown aground, basically. <laughs> so That's if you don't good. navigate extremely carefully or if your luck is bad, you know, you could be in really big trouble. So most ships actually went through the Drake Passage. Um, it was also called rounding the horn, if you've ever heard that in the old timey yes. books or whatever. And it's, it's called that because of Cape Horn is the name of the southernmost point of Tierra del Fuego. Because it's shaped like a horn, I think. <laughs> there you go. You got yeah. it. <clears throat> there it is. Interestingly, uh, it's, as I mentioned, the, the winds are westerly there. And it makes extremely difficult sailing for ships in the Drake Passage traveling from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes ships Kinda even Kind of go in the ha- opposite direction you want. Yeah. hmm <laughs> Sometimes ships even had to turn back. Uh, famously, the HMS Bounty, which, you know, if you've heard of Mutiny on the Bounty, that ship, they were trying to get to Tahiti mm-hmm. going, going west, but they actually wound up having to turn around and go east <laughs> the long way around. <laughs> which I think didn't make the crew any fonder of uh, 
the captain. No, no it did no. not. But aside from all this human drama, the Drake Passage is also hugely important to world ocean and climate patterns. So the shape, of, uh, the shape and the depth of the Drake Passage have a big influence on the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, which uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, mm-hmm. it's a deep water current and it makes a complete circuit of the Antarctic continent. And it's driven by mm-hmm. those westerly winds at those latitudes. And this is actually um, the strongest current on Earth by a lot of measures. And it's, oh, cool. it's kind of one of the main drivers of, the, of other global ocean current patterns. And there's, there's basically what is sometimes called a conveyor belt, a sort of worldwide conveyor belt of ocean currents. And it circulates through the major oceans and drives the exchange of nutrients and gases and life forms and various other things. So this, uh, this Antarctic circumpolar current just circles the continent and it connects, it's the only current that connects the Indian, the Pacific and the Atlantic oceans. And it's the only one that fully circles the globe. So it's very important. And since the Drake passage yeah. is the, the narrowest point that it has to flow through, it's very <laughs> strong there. Um, in fact, the amount of water that flows through the Drake passage is uh, more than 150 times the volume of all the rivers in the world. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> sure. It is a lot. And another important thing about the anarctic circumpolar current is for reasons that are a little too complex to explain here, um basically the the current combined with temperature and salinity, salinity gradients that are due to geo- to latitude. Um, mm-hmm. They combine to keep Antarctica relatively cold. So like more cold than you would otherwise expect in some ways. And okay. yeah. Um, so it's believed that when the Drake passage opened, which was somewhere between 17 and 49 million years ago, it led to that current being established and Antarctica cooling down more um, than it had been. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Makes sense, though. Yeah. So climate change is now messing with it, of course. Uh, <laughs> it's apparently speeding it up, speeding the current up. And oh, really? Yeah. For, for <laughs> some complicated reasons, it may actually increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because it's basically it's bringing deep water up that has a lot of carbon dioxide mm-hmm. in it. And, right, right. And it'll off-gas. Um, right. yeah. So on that, I feel like I often end my episodes on like some that... depressing environmental note. <laughs> 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 on that sad note. Yeah. I, I did rely on a bunch of different sources today, but I want to particular, in particular, call out a really great book, um, about Shackleton's voyage. It's called Endurance by Alfred Lansing. It's a classic, really good read if you're right. interested in that. All right. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, Kirk will have something for us. Cool. Thanks, Victoria. Mm-hmm. Kirk, let's go. Hey, you. Yes, you. Don't skip ahead. I know your finger was hovering right over that skip button because you're thinking, they're going to tell me about the Society of Strange. Well, 
look. I just wanted this week say thank you to all of our amazing patrons who have made this show possible. We could not do it without you. Uh, doing a podcast is not free. Uh, you know, we have equipment costs, we have hosting costs to make the show available, and the members of the Society of Strange are the ones that make that possible. So thank you. We appreciate you so much. If you want to join our little club and help us to continue to do what we do, head over to patreon.com slash strangebynature. I'm going to send things right back to the show. Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, this week I am diving deep into my secret horde of topics. To dredge one up, I've been meaning to get to for a while. Mm-hmm. I was actually inspired by Rachel's topic, uh, well, for the past you know, two weeks here, uh, about all the colorful animals. And specifically, you know, when you brought up the, the um, peacock mantis shrimp, I was like, oh, of course. Now, now is the time to talk about uh, an aquatic creature as well. So yes. I, uh, it's... it's it's at least a little bit colorful, and it does indeed live in Rachel, one of your favorite places. Not Australia, but the ocean. The ocean. Hmm. I thought at first so, I thought you said it lives in Rachel. <laughs> I hope not. No, it I does not. Really hope. I mean, no. Uh, that's extra funny when you learn what my topic is. Okay. Um, Just. Kirk's face. None of you can obviously see it, but he's about ready to leave the room. I wasn't. I wasn't going to come right out and say it, but we're talking about crabs. (laughs) (coughs) Yeah. For the record, crabs do not live inside of me. Okay, great. Statement. I didn't think I had to say ever. That's that's where we've come. That's that's what the show has come. Perhaps to. do not look right. inside of Rachel. Episode title right there. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So the creature I'm talking about this week is actually a whole genus of creatures uh, that goes by the name of Libia. And I often find it kind of interesting to think about like where these genus names come from. Like, do they mean something? And I looked and I looked and I looked on this one, and I just could not find any reference to what Libya means and why they picked that genus, which is really too bad. One of the things that really bugs me about, you know, all these scientific names for creatures is like, they have these amazing names Mm -hmm. and there's never any explanation anywhere as to why they went with that name. It's probably deep in the archives, some natural history museum somewhere. Oh, I'm sure it is. But you know, it's, I, I want a book that just lists every species in the world and what their name means. Is that asking for too much? Maybe. Yes, probably. So anyways, this week I'm talking about boxer crabs. Ooh. And this name is actually a common name that applies to all members of the Libya genus. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's actually about 10 different species that are in uh, this genus. And they all go by the same common name. So they're all boxing crabs or boxer crabs or pom-pom crabs which is very cute that's Uh, so so cute the distinctive and strange feature of these crabs is that they don't have large claws like we would typically Mm. Mm -hmm. associate with crabs uh and that was probably one of the first things you pictured when i said crab was like these the big like one big large claw and another one that's kind of smaller yeah yeah so they don't have those um Hmm. and what they have is essentially 
like a, a slender finger uh, with a eight or nine okay. tiny little claws or hooks kind of on the end. And they use this unique appendage to pick up sea anemone and use them for boxing gloves. Thus their name. That oh. sounds amazing. Club. They yeah. pick up sea anemone and just hit. Hold them in their hands <laughs> and, and just hit. punch it out. That's yeah. awesome. I mean, that would work. <laughs> That's so awesome. This is actually an example of mutualism. So yeah. both species benefit from the arrangement. The crabs obviously benefit as they get to carry around painful, stinging pom-poms. Right? So, uh, <laughs> they're the they cheerleaders of the ocean. Yeah, except they're using them for defense. You know, D, D, right. D, defense. <laughs> and uh, if, if anything's trying to attack them, they can just like, pow, just they start boxing them and, and stinging mm-hmm. them with these uh, anemone that are on their hands, which is just wild. Um, and the anemone are actually thought to benefit as well because they're gaining mobility. They're being, they're being carried around. Um, it probably gives them access to food that they may not otherwise get come into contact with. And possibly even one research uh, apparently was showing that um, they get greater oxygenation. Uh, oh. I don't know if it's because they're being waved around in the water or what, but they, they are getting more oxygen. So I think there's some inter- interesting trade-offs, though, that it's not necessarily all... Uh, necessarily positive stuff so mm-hmm. one of those has to do with size now i tend to think of sea anemones as being like fairly good size like a i don't know orange or grapefruit kind of sizes like what i picture when i think of one i'm probably thinking right of the you big, don't think like, of mm-hmm. showy ones exactly not the little yeah, tiny well, ones that are everywhere boxer crabs are pretty small Oh. Uh, one of the better known species that's been research that researched a bunch is actually only about an inch wide. Oh, that's and it's so actual, tiny. It's actual body. Yeah, it's body. So I mean, its legs stick out more than that. But you know, it, it's only uh, its body is an inch wide, and that's actually one of the big boxer uh, okay. crabs. I I couldn't find really good oh. size information on all ten different species, but the ones I could find, a lot of them were only a half inch in it's size. So small. So wow. they're just teeny. So you got to picture the sea anemone. They're not carrying around big old like grapefruit sized pom poms. They're mm-hmm. carrying around some very tiny uh, anemones. <laughs> so um, the crabs actually don't want too big of an anemone on their hands. And so they actually control how much food the anemone have access to. And they can mm-hmm. therefore control how large they're going to get. It's so they basically keep, keep them small anemone. by restrict. Yeah, I, and I did <laughs> see it described as that. I mean, which is not, ex- and, and I, as someone who has done bonsai, like I yeah. actually kind of object to that comparison because people <laughs> think you're like starving the plants. And actually, if you starve them, they die. It has more to do with, I could do as a whole topic one day, how you actually <laughs> keep those trees small. But sounds um, like Patreon yes, episode. They are they are miniature in the same sense that bonsai trees are are miniature. Uh, so that is sort of a trade off that the anemone is getting. They're they're not going to grow up to be as big as they maybe could otherwise. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the drawbacks for the crabs is that where their claws should be, they have stinging anemone. Uh, mm-hmm. So as you can imagine, this makes catching food with their claws difficult I mean, they really can't and so mm-hmm. instead they actually um use the anemone to catch the food and then they have other appendages that they use to like take the food away from the anemone and eat it um so they're okay. like using it to I, I don't know to like sting things or whatever but they're kind of like hunting around with those pom-poms 
and then pulling food out of them. So okay. how are they hold how exactly are they holding on to the anemone again? So they've got those like eight or nine little kind of hooks okay. at the end mm-hmm. of their uh appendage and they're sort of clasping onto it. Okay. So research has shown that the crabs play actually a pretty important role in propagation of new anemone, and it's pretty fascinating. So let mm. me just describe this Good. experiment some researchers did. The researchers collected crabs uh, from the Red Sea, mm. and all of them already had their own anemone, their little pom-poms, right? Mm-hmm. So they put them into aquariums, and they took one anemone away from each crab, so each one of them was now only holding one. Mm-hmm. And you might think, oh, maybe they're going to like fight over them or something. Like, What's going to happen? Right. Well, all, all the crabs each cut their ex- remaining anemone in half and then put one half in each, you know, of course they did. Little claw. hand, essentially. <laughs> and because they're very small and they can regenerate within just a few days, everyone had two anemone again. That's great. That's so which cool. is super cool. And another experiment they put two anemone together in an aquarium, not sorry, two boxer crabs in an aquarium together. And then they took both anemone away from one of them. And what they observed was that the two crabs would then fight until they both had one. And then once they bo- both had one, they'd stop fighting. And they would again cut it in half, hold one in each hand. And within days, they have regenerated and they both had full pom-poms again. Huh. So very cool. It's all very interesting. Uh, but... What animals do in the lab can be different than what actually happens in the wild. So there was a third part. The researchers wanted to make sure that this is really what was happening in the wild as well. So they went out and they actually took DNA samples of the anemone from both claws of boxer crabs. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that in each case, the anemone in each claw was a clone of the other one. Awesome. So the asexual propagation scene in the lab also happens in the wild and is likely how all the crabs in the wild end up with their own anemone pom-poms. So I think it's probably safe to say that this um, relationship has certainly boosted the population of these particular species of anemone. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I was really initially thinking the story would just be about the boxer crabs, you know, as I started to research it more, I realized that it's really a story about um, these two species that are in this mutualistic relationship. And both are interesting on their own, but together... They're just so fantastic and strange. I will point out one last thing, though, that um, while the anemone can live on their own, the crabs cannot live mm. without the anemone. Okay. So it's, it's okay. not a completely two-way street yeah. in uh, that way. But it yeah. is super cool. And uh, my sources this week for this was uh, the research uh, paper in the, the journal Peer. And the paper was called Boxer Crabs Induce Asexual Reproduction of Their Associated Sea Anemones by Splitting in- and Intraspecific Theft. Uh, and then some general information came from Wikipedia. Very cool. Awesome. Thanks, Kirk. Um, we're going to go to a break. And when we get back, we will have Rachel. Yay! Welcome back, everyone. Um... So super exciting note, uh, as we get started, I actually did my math wrong and forgot that we actually have five Wednesdays this June, so I could do five rainbowy topics, and which is super exciting, Ooh. but that, Ooh. oh, it's so fun. Um, but I also, I meant to end this, uh, end pride celebration with this particular creature, but I'm just going to go for it because it's wonderful and I cannot 
believe we have not covered this. Okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. right. It's one of those things that we're going to probably cover again because I'm going to focus in on one particular little subset and we're going to have to go mm -hmm. back in because this week uh, I'm covering chameleons. Uh, nice. How oh, have we yeah. not covered chameleons? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, there's, it's a big, strange That's world. That's how. Um, so as of June 2015... There are two, 202 distinct species of chameleon. And there is no way that I can cover all of those. Uh, so I'm leaving, <laughs> I'm leaving no. that door open. Uh, so I'm going to focus on what make chameleons chameleons, but I'm also going to mostly focus in on their coloration, uh, which is how we Great. really know Let's them. Let's do it. So just a little background, chameleons are old world lizards, which pretty much means that they're of more African origin than of the Americas. I say more African origin, they're from Africa, um, but they have been introduced to like Hawaii, California, and um, another state that is eclipsing my brain. Um, that's it. Florida. <clears throat> How could I forget Florida? Mm. Uh they are a it subgroup happens. of iguanas, so they're part of like the same kind of family of iguanas. They're just generally smaller, um, but they have quite a wide mm -hmm. range of species and coloration. Um, they have a wide variety of really cool adaptations uh, from their prehensile tail that they that some species use as a uh, pretty much a fifth limb. They have the zygodactyl hands that allow them to move and grip onto either side of a branch as they move they got their eyeballs that yeah, move in so different wild. directions uh to be able to see but i'm going to focus a little bit more just a little bit more on their just amazing camouflage abilities okay so like i said there's 200 species <clears throat> oh, yeah. over 200 species um, so obviously there's a wide variety of types. Uh, some chameleons are actually more brown, um, cause some live in the rainforests and others live in the deserts. If they live in the deserts, they're going to be more brown and they just are able to shift the shades of brown depending on the light. Um, and oftentimes that coloration change is actually to help the animal either warm up or cool down. They are reptiles, so they are ectotherms, which means that they get their body heat from the surrounding area. Um, so being able to actually warm themselves up or cool themselves down is, especially in a desert, is amazing. Um, mm. They also mm -hmm. use these color shades to communicate with other chameleons um, to either attract potential mates or to even warn enemies. Um, but the biggest thing that I was wondering was just how exactly they end up, um, why the, the species that are so colorful, why they're able to just produce these sheer amounts of colors and be able to change as quickly as they do. Um, right, so right. the first thing is that, uh, the outer layer of their skin is see-through. 
So it doesn't huh. ha- hold any of the pigments. Um, beneath okay. that uh, are special cells that are just filled with uh, pigment, um, which we all are more or less aware of because we have pigment too. Um, when they're trying to display new colors, the brain sends a segment to make uh, to a message to these cells, and it makes the cells uh, get bigger or smaller, which allow for different mm-hmm. um, colors to be released. Uh, and they mix with each other to create new skin tones. So this is all happening in this layer. Now, when you say when you say released, I mean, are the pigments actually mixed together, or we're just seeing like a a, a TV where the different like the dots are just bigger, and so we are visually combining them, or do they actually combine? Um, it depends on the species. They can actually mix a TV. Hmm. Um, okay. Or yeah, like where pixels, it's more like yeah. pixels, but it really depends on the species. Um, right. Wow. So what they're trying to do, or what they do, actu- actually, is they are actively changing the uh, response of those uh, pigments because inside of the layer of cells are um, is like super tiny, tiny, tiny little guanine crystals, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and that helps refract some of the light. Um to help change the okay. color of the skin as well. So it's cha- it, the pigments are being released and allows the, um, it changes the color of the crystal just a little bit and it reflects the light off of the crystal and into this, over the skin, which changes the color. Ooh, it's very that's wild. wild. Um, one, so often we have, we see them uh, using it as camouflage to prevent uh you know from them from being eaten as they are still a, a prey species or to also hide themselves from insects that they are trying to eat but they've also been shown to adjust the colors of camouflage they're actually able to change their colors by the vision of the specific predator species that are threatening them oh not Whoa, so not all species like they somehow some, kn- yeah so so some like species f- of chameleon are able to change their color to say a frequency that they know that that particular predator can't see as yeah. well is that what you're saying that is wild we're still trying to figure out how exactly they do that <laughs> yeah because uh, that's absolutely insane um because how do they know what that particular species can or cannot see? How, how do you? <laughs> well, I mean, trial and Mostly. error, but like <laughs> through 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 many generations. But how does that even get encoded into your DNA to right. get passed And along? then if like, you see the predator that is threatening you, you change. You go in. You tell your cells, or you don't tell your cells. That it's part of a different part of your brain. But your cells changed so that way that particular predator isn't able to see you anymore that's crazy um, wow which is a type of camouflage that that's we bonkers, just yeah. aren't even we it's there's we're not anywhere close 
<laughs> we're not anywhere close. So generally speaking, chameleons are also able to display different emotions and signals um, to other chame- <laughs> chameleons. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Kirk is becoming, uh, he's posing a disappearing act. Sorry, I just uh, put a camouflage hat us. on while you were talking. <laughs> Don't let me interrupt you. Um, but they do have some base coloration that they have uh, depending on the state. Most of the time, uh, we've been able to figure out like blue and green, um, are more relaxed states. Um, but if they get really Mm -hmm. excited or if they are like showing aggression, um, yellow, uh, orange and red tend to be more reflected. Sure. Um, it's actually also been shown that they've been able to create a purple color, which is really fun. (laughs) Um, As I talked to you, I said in an earlier episode, um, these are pigments, so it's not quite color wavelengths, um, but they have been able to mix red and blue pigments to refract and create the purple coloration um if they so need to um yeah it's just it's wild and there's so much that we're still learning and trying to figure out about chameleons because truly it's just astounding and i can't say enough about how amazing chameleons are so um that's what i have for you both today yeah they are that's amazing just bizarre animals Uh. probably you know i love when you you read about something like this and you realize that it's even weirder than you kind of suspected it was it's so they're so weird i knew they were bizarre they they have so many other like they have so many other adaptations that already make them weird but you get into their coloration and it's just like hold on what that's insane you know awesome um yeah so a couple of uh websites that i used for uh just trying to wrap my head around all of this was uh wikipedia was really helpful as well as the san diego zoo and um uh national geographic was also super helpful in trying to wrap my brain around all of that information so yeah excellent well thank you for another colorful topic you got one more thank you so much i have one more yeah one more um thank you all for listening we'll see you next week bye-bye bye-bye thanks everyone for listening to today's show be sure to subscribe new episodes drop every wednesday and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace The Strange.